Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and I just want to let you know about my gut healing bundle for those with thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. This includes SMT Probio, which is a probiotic with 18 well-researched strains, Enzymes Plus, which not only includes digestive enzymes, but betaine, HCL, and ox bile, and SMT GI Restore, which is a stevia-free formulation that has multiple nutrients and herbs that have been proven to help support the healing of the gut. To learn more about this, you can visit guthealingbundle.com. Thank you for joining me on the Save My Thyroid podcast, where I help people save their thyroid and regain their health. My name is Dr. Eric Osansky, and if you have hyperthyroidism, then you will especially benefit from these episodes. If you have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you will also find many of the episodes to be valuable, including this one, where I interview Betty Murray, who is a nutrition expert and functional medicine practitioner who focuses on helping women balance their hormones. And in this episode, Betty and I chatted about progesterone, and she also spent a few minutes talking about postpartum thyroiditis as well. As usual, make sure you listen to the post-episode chat after the outro music, as I'll expand on bioidentical progesterone, chase tree and maca root, optimizing the adrenals, and whether you should consume caffeine to support estrogen metabolism. And you can access the show notes by visiting savemythyroid.com forward slash 103. Anyway, here is my interview with Betty. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. All right, so I am very excited to chat with today's guest. We have Betty Murray, and we're going to be talking about hormones with the focus on progesterone, and then we're also going to be talking about postpartum thyroiditis a little bit. And so I'm going to dive into Betty's bio. She is a nutrition expert, PhD, researcher, certified functional medicine practitioner, and speaker. Betty helps women over 40 harness their hormones to lose weight, optimize sleep, restore energy, and thrive. And during her research for her PhD, Betty made several key discoveries that led to hormone and metabolic imbalances that plague women over 40. Restoring balance to these key metabolic and hormone pathways is the basis of her hormone reset program. And this program has helped her and hundreds of clients lose weight easily, reduce hot flashes, restore sleep, and turn up their energy without living on a diet of deprivation. She is also the host of the Menopause Mastery Podcast and the founder and CEO of Living Well Dallas Functional Medicine Center. She is a frequently featured nutrition expert on Fox News Broadcasting, CW33, NBC, and CBS. And thank you so much for joining us, Betty. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. And I'm excited to chat with you about progesterone. But before we do that, let's get a little bit more into your background and what led to you to start talking about hormones. It sounds like you had your own hormone journey. Yeah, I would love to say I didn't. But, you know, the truth is, is especially for women, none of us get a pass on menopause, right? It's going to happen whether we will like it or not. But my hormone journey actually started after my functional medicine journey. I really came to the functional medicine and functional nutrition realm 
from my own diagnosis of colitis and then later on celiac. And it was really me searching for ways to sort of fix those autoimmune conditions and also repair my digestive disorder. And, you know, I fell in love with it and obviously found a way to sort of take care of that and also get rid of my symptoms, i.e. can't call it cure, but I have been without symptoms for over 18 years. But when I entered into the very last part of my 30s and my early 40s in particular, it was like something radically changed in my health, right? Everything that had worked for me before stopped working. So I started getting acne. I was getting acne like on my chin here. I started gaining weight despite, I'm a nutrition professional, despite eating a low carb, high protein diet, doing high intensity interval exercise, having adequate rest periods, and all of those things that we tell everybody, particularly people in my profession, that we're telling people to do. And it led me on this journey. I was diagnosed as hypothyroid. I am not actually Hashimoto's. I actually have subclinical conversion issues. And so I was put on thyroid medication and we played with that for a long time trying to figure out what was going on. And I was told that I had all these different problems. Maybe you have adrenal fatigue, maybe you have this, maybe you have that. And, you know, basically my entire forties, I felt like I was in this sort of endless fight with my hormones. And it actually is what led me back for my PhD, you know, because I was also having all the other things you associate with perimenopause, you know, PMS and mood swings and sleep problems and heavy periods and too frequent periods. And so when I got into that PhD program, I really started digging and looking at kind of the metabolic effect of these hormones, not the stuff that everybody was talking about, but it was the things that aren't being talked about. And you know, what's happening inside the powerhouses of your cells and other things. And so I was able to sort of reverse a lot of those symptoms, actually, as I went into menopause. So I can say now at 53 going on 54, I feel better than I did at 35. And I have a better harness on my hormones. But there's so much that is missing in the medical community. And, you know, and anybody that listens to my podcast knows that I'm pretty angry about the sort of gaslighting of women's health and sort of the prepared ignorance of let's not talk about what's really going to happen in this perimenopausal season to menopause. And for some women, that starts in their 30s because that's where you start to see fertility challenges, right? And we don't really talk a lot about what's happening. And so, you know, that's why I'm really kind of on this soapbox now because my transition into menopause started in my late 30s and took over a decade. And it was really uncomfortable. And I was already an expert in a lot of these things. So, you know, I hate to say it, but it's because I had such a horrible perimenopause that I'm here today talking about hormones. Yeah, that's common, but common isn't normal. So like when women have these extreme symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, other symptoms, a lot of them just conclude, oh, it's normal. It's perimenopause, postmenopause. But your goal is to help women to not have those symptoms just because, again, even though they're very common, they aren't normal. Right. No, it's exactly true. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Let's dive into progesterone and talk about why, like start off, if you could discuss why so many women have, I guess it's not only progesterone deficiencies, but hormone deficiencies at all overall with an emphasis again on progesterone. Certainly, certainly. So I like to describe particularly all of our hormones are like a symphony right? And in, in a symphony, you're going to have the director of the show that's going to decide, you know, what's the ambiance of the actual experience? What experience do they want to have? And that is your hypothalamus 
And then you have your pituitary, right? So that's in the brain. So the pituitary is the conductor and it's the one that's going to talk to the symphony and tell the wind section to play what it needs to play and, you know, the brass section to play what it needs to play and the, you know, percussion to do what they need to do. And the hypothalamus and the pituitary are constantly getting information, not only from what we think, what we eat, what we do, but from our senses, the chemicals we get exposed to. And I think a lot of the dysregulation we see comes from this onslaught of what's happening at the pituitary and the hypothalamus, right? Because our environment is so much more toxic and there's so much more going on today than it was even 50 years ago. But what's really happening is the downstream effect. So when you look at those different parts of our endocrine system, so we have our thyroid, we have our adrenal glands, we have our ovaries that produce our sex hormones, and then we even have the pancreas that's producing insulin. Those are all the different parts of that symphony, right? And the truth is, is I like to look at it this way, and my research kind of bears this out. The most primary hormones that get sort of precedent over everything else outside of your metabolic hormones like insulin, because we got to be able to shuttle glucose into our cells, and that's what insulin does, or otherwise we wouldn't survive. But when you step outside of that very basic need, the adrenals are kind of your canary, right? They're helping your body understand, are you under stress or not? Are you in fear or flight? Do you need to fight for your life? Yes or no. And when we look at our sex hormones, our sex hormones are luxuries. So progesterone and estrogen, they're for when the world is safe and happy and procreation and continuing the species is awesome. But if our adrenals are constantly sending out this gigantic stress response, right? The world's not safe. I'm starving on the Serengeti it's going to alter those sex hormones. So I think the big thing that people need to know is that all of these hormones play together. And unfortunately, particularly in the conventional world, they get parsed out into these individual hormones. My endocrinologist only does thyroid or, you know, my gynecologist is going to help me with my sex hormones, but hey, got to break it to you. They're a surgeon, not a hormone expert in most cases. So we don't look at them as this grouping of, you know, a orchestra that are playing together. And so when we look at the sex hormones, it really is the combination between our three different estrogens that fluctuate throughout the course of the month. And then a pituitary hormone that instructs the ovaries to sort of get ready, pop the egg out, shoot it out so it can end up in the fallopian tube. And hopefully by the time it gets to the uterus, we've got implantation because we've had a combination of the sperm and the egg. And then it's also the subsequent rise of progesterone that helps prepare that uterus for implantation for growth of a fetus. And it's that combination of those hormones that fluctuate throughout our month that make our female hormonal cycle. You know, and for most people, it's somewhere between roughly 24 to 28 days up to about 34-ish would be a normal cycle. And then some people are longer, some people are shorter, and we can get into why that may be. But progesterone is a really important hormone, obviously, for fertility. At a minimum, if we do not have enough progesterone, the uterine lining is not prepared to carry a fetus, and it's more likely that we will have miscarriage, right, for instance, as one of the major things. And I'm glad you mentioned the hypothalamus, pituitary, because the I commonly say that you need to have healthy adrenals in order to have healthy sex hormones and 
You know, same thing with the thyroid. Even though a lot of cases of thyroid are autoimmune, you still have that communication, the HPA axis, but then you also have the HPT, hypothalamic pituitary thyroid, the HPG axis. So it sounds like that's one of the areas you focus on when it comes to improving health of the hormones as well as making sure that the person does have healthy adrenals. Absolutely. You know, and the interesting thing, the adrenals are responsible for the vast majority of our progesterone production. We do get some from the ovaries, but especially like in my case, my ovaries are gone. (laughs) They have petered out. I don't have any, so it would just be the adrenals. So that peripheral adrenal progesterone production, so the adrenals make progesterone, that can be pulled through a pathway to make cortisol, right? So if I'm under stress and, you know, my body's depending mostly on that adrenal production of progesterone, I may actually be using it as substrate to make cortisol to continue that stress response. So I don't work specifically in fertility. I have helped lots of people get pregnant, but my population skew a little bit older, not that I haven't, you know, done it. But when I've worked with a lot of women who are struggling to get pregnant, who have no major definable problems with egg quality and other things, nine times out of 10, it's probably because they are so stressed. And then the concept of trying to get pregnant is stressing them out and that they're probably making their own progesterone somewhat deficient. And that if we just let up off the wheel a little bit and let go, like I always tell them, I'm like, look, I need you to go on vacation, chill out, play around with each other like rabbits and come home because chances are we might be lucky, especially if it's around that ovulation time period, because we may be shortchanging our progesterone just because we have some of that substrate from the adrenals being used to make cortisol. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think you alluded to it earlier, the doctors, they just have their own focuses and they never will talk about adrenals when it comes to problems with the sex hormones. So it's great that there are practitioners like yourself, myself, that the importance, because yeah, as you mentioned, the body will always prioritize cortisol over the sex hormones. And if someone's in a chronically stressed state, there really is no way around that. I mean, you could take bioidentical hormones, you could certainly talk about that, but that's not fixing the problem, ideally. And again, there's a time and place for bioidentical hormones. Again, I don't know what your perspective is on that. I'm definitely not against them. But I guess it frustrates me when that's all they do. Like you go to someone who prescribes bioidentical hormones and they don't do anything from a diet and lifestyle perspective. They All they do is just give the hormones. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely been a kind of an explosion of doctors that are kind of, I would say they've got their toe in the water of, you know, maybe looking at things slightly more holistically in most physicians. And obviously I'm a PhD, I'm not a MDDO or ND, right? So I don't prescribe. That's the beauty of my world is I can really just talk about what does the research say? What does it mean? How does it apply to you? And I have no vested interest because I'm not prescribing, but I have clinicians, prescribers in my practice that work with me. And, you know, and I think they have their place, but you will never get really good physiological function if you're just throwing hormones in and you don't correct some of those underlying diet and lifestyle pieces that are going to keep driving, particularly that adrenal function. Believe me, I was the first to go, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I want to find a pill to make up for what I don't want to do because I'm a type A FOMO person. I want to just do more. It's my nature. And the truth is, is I protect my sleep like nobody's business. I make sure I relax and meditate and I exercise appropriately because that is what's keeping me young as I age, you know? And so we have to do those other pieces and hormones are a part of it, but they aren't the only part of it. And, you know, I would say also in my case, I was given all kinds of hormones. 
And I was still 35 pounds overweight as a practicing nutritionist and ex-bodybuilder. So I was like, obviously, if it was just a hormone problem, that would have fixed it. And it wasn't. Interesting. So you took bioidentical hormones in the past? Oh, yeah. And, and in complete disclosure, I'm menopausal now, and I'm absolutely on bioidentical hormones now. But throwing in just thyroid medication and throwing in progesterone, because it was obvious that I was estrogen dominant, we can go into what that means. It helped a little bit, but it wasn't correcting some of the underlying damage that had really happened. Right. And so, you know, and so it was a kind of pick a pack sort of treatment process that just didn't work very well. Okay. So it sounds like, I mean, you're on bioidentical hormones now and you are in the past, but the difference is in the past, kind of like we were just talking about, that's all you were doing and you weren't doing anything to improve your health otherwise. So, or at least optimize your health. Maybe you were doing things because you've been doing this for quite a while. All right. And what are some of the common symptoms of progesterone deficiency? Right, right. So particularly, like I said, for a lot of women, this can start even in their 30s, right? So the first thing is, is like we were talking about fertility. If somebody's got infertility issues, that's a high probability that it's a low progesterone level in the second half of the cycle, right? That's an easy thing to go look at because depending on who we are genetically, we may not make very much to, you know, and there's metabolic disorders like polycystic ovarian syndrome that is defined by also a kind of lack of progesterone production because of problems with the pituitary. But when we look at what are the symptoms, so it can be, you know, I'd say the big ones that start to show up is going to be your things like sleep, right? Progesterone has a powerful effect for one of the receptors in our brain for a neurotransmitter called GABA. And GABA is our major anti-anxiety neurotransmitter. And it's what also helps keep us asleep. So often as progesterone levels decline, the sleep starts to get pretty sketchy. That was a significant problem for me right? The sleep was very, very sketchy. So insomnia, interrupted sleep, that would absolutely be one of the symptoms. And then you can look at some of the other things. So a lot of the other symptoms can be things like fibroids, fibrocystic breast disease, heavy periods, you know, clotty periods, periods that become more frequent. So anything that has to do with, you know, kind of abnormal periods can be part of that. And then if you look at even mood issues, right? So estrogen and progesterone, this is where you start to get into sort of sketchy game because either one of them being way too high relative to the other or way too low relative to the other, you can also see some pretty significant mood issues. So if someone gets to second half of their cycle, like, you know, let's say the 10 days or so before their period and they're raging mad, irritable, weepy, angry, <laughs> all of those things, it may very well be because progesterone is deficient. You can even get, you know, like I said, the acne, right? Acne, particularly along the cheek line and the chin can be a sign of abnormal hormones and relative estrogen dominance relative to progesterone. You know, so those are some very basic, easy symptoms that could be a sign something is off. So sticking on the topic of estrogen, I mean, talk about both progesterone and estrogen. So if someone has too much estrogen, that could be considered an estrogen dominant condition. But even if they have normal estrogen, but low progesterone, that also is considered estrogen dominance as well, correct? Exactly, exactly. Because it really is the relative relationship between these hormones that set up a lot of those symptoms, right? And when they get wildly out of balance to each other, and again, it's almost natural 
again, natural isn't ideal, but it's almost natural for most women to experience some of that as they get into that menopausal timeline, as they start moving towards menopause, because progesterone declines long before estrogen does. Is there any concerns with too much progesterone, which I assume doesn't really happen unless if someone's taken progesterone, but like there's the concerns if someone has excess estrogen, if someone takes a progesterone cream and, you know, they're taking more than they need to take. Is there any concern with that? You know, it's interesting. So progesterone, when you look at the studies out there, so we don't generally see a lot of occasions where you see this really wild increase of progesterone relative to estrogen. But when we get into the scenario where their progesterone levels might be problematic, could be things like postpartum depression, right? So progesterone levels when we're pregnant, right? Particularly those last two trimesters is off the chart. And if progesterone is way too high, you will see things like water retention. Like I've not been pregnant, I'm child-free, but anybody that's been pregnant will tell you they get to that last half of their pregnancy and they just feel like they're waterlogged right? So definitely excess progesterone can cause edema, so water retention, things like that. So if somebody was, let's say, maybe supplementing or had a scenario where their progesterone was peaking more than their estrogen, they might get more water retention, more fluid retention, those kind of things. The other side of that too is if we look at, you know, the overall mood scenario, right? So PMDD, which is a much more severe form of PMS, and it's premenstrual, now I'm going to try and say what it is and I can't say it, but it's basically premenstrual disorder. There we go. And it is a diagnosis, right? It's a label, but it is when that second half of the cycle results in some pretty significant psychological problems, right? And it has been implicated in women doing, you know, acts of violence and other things. There is some literature out there showing that it may be this sort of brain reaction to that wild change in progesterone, right? And that it, you know, that the brain is sort of responding adversely to it. We don't know for sure, but it seems like it may be that. And so postpartum and then PMDD may be associated with these wild shifts in progesterone levels. You know, now if we look at a woman maybe supplementing with progesterone, and maybe she's getting more than what she needs, usually you'll get weird things like breast swelling, breast tenderness, right? Which if you have too little, you can also have that, but you can kind of track it to the intake. But what's interesting is when you look at the supplementation with progesterone, there's good literature out there showing that it's quite effective as a sleep aid, right? Particularly even in women postmenopausally, much past menopause, you know, so it has positive effects too. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. And when it comes to determining how much progesterone someone would need, I guess that's where the testing comes into play. And that's where I want to talk a little bit about hormone testing, again, focusing on progesterone, but feel free to talk about some of the other hormones. Do you have a favorite test, whether it's blood testing or dried urine testing these days, a lot of practitioners are doing? Yeah. So there's advantages and drawbacks to all of them. So the first one is, I'll say serum testing is less ideal for multiple reasons. Now, it's ideal because it's easy because you're probably going to run other labs. So it's easy to kind of throw them on top, you know, because you're going to blood draw, right, for your metabolic panel or your other things that you might be looking at. But when you're looking at sex hormones in blood, all our hormones have binding proteins. And those binding proteins, think of them as sort of a taxi cab that pick up the hormone, drive it around and drop it off at whatever target place it needs to do its job. 
when you look in blood, you can't distinguish between how many of your hormones are in the car and how many are outside, right? So you could falsely be dosing inappropriately because you can't tell how many are free because the free hormone is the important hormone. That's where it's available to do its own work. And those binding globulins can really tie them up, right? So it's a less favorable one. The other thing is progesterone is very fast from production to tissue. So it basically gets made and used very quickly. And so you could easily dose improperly if you're looking at blood alone. But that's not to say that sometimes we do what I call crick and dirty blood work just to see what's happening, right? Because we're already getting a bunch of other things. And especially if insurance might pay for it, it might be worthy to check. Now, saliva, saliva can show you the free amounts, right? And it's a pretty good judge of progesterone, although a lot of times it can project really high salivary levels of progesterone when it may not be that physiologically high. And it has some advantages. Personally, I prefer either the dried urine spot, so the Dutch test, or a 24-hour urine test for hormone metabolism. Both of them test the same things, except the dried spot can also give me the cortisol rhythm throughout the day. And we can talk about that if you want to, because you're getting multiple tests throughout the day to kind of see what your adrenals are doing. The reason why hormone testing in urine, I think, is advantageous is number one, you're getting free levels right? So we're picking up the free levels of the hormones. So we can see, is it adequate or not for age? Is it at a physiological range that is known to help things like bone mineral density and osteoporosis and heart and all those other pieces? We can also see the metabolites. So these hormones get made into, think of it as we detoxify them. So once we've made these hormones, they do their job, they get sent to the liver to get packaged up, to get thrown out. And that packaging process is a multi-step process that is driven by our genetics, can be interfered with by toxins, and have some limited capacity potentially in different people. And the dried urine test and the 24-hour urine test shows us those processes at each step of the way. So you can really see, once I get my hormone to the liver, can I wrap it in the three different wrappers that I need to so I can throw it out in the trash? right? Because every single one of those steps has to be done in order with the right ingredients at the right time, or you can't get rid of those hormones. And so those tests are better to judge adequacy and what happens after you use it. And so I like them. They're obviously more expensive usually than blood work. Maybe not. I mean, if you're paying for blood work with like LabCorp Quest out of pocket, sometimes those can be very expensive. Whereas this test gives us more data. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of different advantages to doing a test like the Dutch test. One thing I like is when looking at postmenopausal women, that it gives that postmenopausal range where if you do a blood test, someone's progesterone is zero, the lab considers it to be perfectly fine. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's, I think, what pretty much all the hormones maybe not testosterone, but with progesterone, estrogen, if their levels are non-existent, it's okay. Whereas the Dutch gives the premenopausal range and it gives that little postmenopausal range. And so I like that. And then for cycling women, there's a cycle mapping option as well, where you can okay. look at it throughout your cycle. So yeah, I like the Dutch test as well. And then you mentioned the metabolism, the hormone metabolism. Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and if you're looking to do everything you can to save your thyroid gland, in addition to listening to this podcast, there are a few different ways we can help you. 
First of all, I've written a book on hyperthyroidism called Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, as well as a book called Hashimoto's Triggers, which of course is on Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And you can find both of these on Amazon, as well as other websites where books are sold. Second, you could also join my Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Healing Community by visiting autoimmunethyroidgroup.com. And finally, if you want to get personal help from me, you could visit the website workwithdreric.com. Just to let you know, I only see a limited number of new patients each month, and I do require anyone interested to complete a brief online application before working with me. And now back to the show. Do you see a lot of people when it comes to, I know we're talking about progesterone, but when it comes to estrogen, do you see a lot of people with elevated like 4-OH and 16-OH metabolites? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm an open book online, so I've actually played my entire review of my own genetics as a podcast. So if anybody wants to know what genetics means, you can go listen to my podcast and hear my own personal genetics. I'm heavily mutated in that pathway. So I have two mutations on that CYP1B1 gene, which for anybody who doesn't know what that is, that's a less favorable estrogen metabolism pathway, and it makes a toxic metabolite called 4-hydroxyestrone, right? So I'm on hormones. But I watch what my hormones are doing by using the Dutch test and I use nutrition to modulate it because I want the positive effects of hormones to keep me healthy and all those other things, but I want to make sure I get them to the trash. So I do see a lot of people with very high levels, particularly of 4-hydroxy or the propensity to have high levels and we do a bunch of things to bring them down. Like I said, myself included. So I use myself sort of as a lab rat of one all the time to go, what happens if we do this? on this pathway. Awesome. We might have to get you back one day to talk about genetics and talk about methylation and all that fun stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. So what are some ways to increase progesterone? I mean, obviously there's bioidentical hormones, which you're taking. I want you to talk more about that. And one question also that when it comes to that is taking it during postmenopause, do you think that every woman in postmenopause should take the hormones, everyone and If not, should everyone with a hysterectomy take uh, bioidentical hormones? And then if you could talk a little bit about the botanicals, the herbs such as Phytex, Chaseberry. Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, let's say I'll start at the kind of younger end of the spectrum. So let's say it's a woman who's maybe in their late 30s. Maybe they're like me and they're like woke up one day and they said, oh, my God, I feel like I'm in puberty again. Something really went wrong. You know, so in those cases where maybe their progesterone isn't peaking quite where it's supposed to be, because again, progesterone declines long before estrogen, I think that's a perfect time to use things like chaseberry, Vitax, otherwise known as Vitax, Dongkwai, even things like maca. Those herbs have been shown to sort of modulate some of these pathways and sort of favorably push towards progesterone a little bit relative to estrogen. And so sometimes we can get some improvement in our hormones just by putting some things in there that sort of swing that spectrum a little back towards progesterone. You know, so I use those quite a bit in my practice. Now, as somebody moves into that 40s spectrum, chances are the progesterone is declining pretty quickly. There are some over-the-counter versions of progesterone that are topical, that are made from sweet Mexican yams. And most of the time, you're looking at a biological effect of about a 20 milligram dose of progesterone with something like that. And those might work a little bit in that very early time period. And you might stack that on top of some of the herbals. But as you start to get into the real loss of progesterone, that's where you start getting into prescriptive needs. 
And progesterone can really be given in two ways. Well, yeah, I guess I'll really focus on the two ways. So progesterone can be given as a cream, topically, a cream or an oil, but a topical delivery. And it absorbs actually very easily subcutaneously, right? So hormones, especially lots of things absorb through your skin, everything really. And so when you're starting to get to those doses, most of the prescriptive dose is going to be 100 to 200 milligrams, right? And that can be given also orally. So what's interesting about oral progesterone is when you give it in a powder form, so imagine it's a powder and you just have a capsule, it's poorly absorbed and poorly utilized. So progesterone, in order for it to be adequately used, it has to be in in a mycelized form. And so it's got to be a micronized. And when they micronize that progesterone, they basically make that fat-soluble hormone water-soluble so you can absorb it. When you look at the clinical studies of the efficacy of a topical progesterone compared to a micronized progesterone oral, actually the oral works better if sleep is an issue. So if a woman's like, I can't sleep, my sleep is terrible, I have insomnia, or it's really interrupted, my general recommendation is go to an oral, right? Oral progesterone has no real concerns with liver metabolism and toxic metabolites, estrogen does, which is a little bit about what we were talking about before. You don't really want to take an oral estrogen because it has to go through first pass through the liver before you can use it. You know, years ago when Premarin was really one of the only things that was available on the market, it has a lot of history of of safe use. It really, really does. I know in the functional medicine community, we're very anti-Premarin and it's because it's got 17 different estrogens and humans only have three. However, there's you know over 50 years of history and there's low risk even with Premarin. But today, we have a much more elegant and much more bioidentical, which means exactly like what our body makes, way to give estrogen. So if we're looking at estrogen therapy, so the woman that may need progesterone as they go through their 40s, often is going to start needing estrogen you know, somewhere before they get to the end, right? The cliff dive of menopause. So estrogen is better given topically, topically. And then there are some, you know, utilizations of like pellets, which are subcutaneous fat and muscle application where your body is actually metabolizing it through the tissues, right? It's just a more efficient way to give it. But estrogen topically means it's going to hit your blood supply, get used, and then it ends up in the liver. So it doesn't go through first pass liver. I believe personally that regardless of whether a woman has a uterus or not, so years ago, doctors would not prescribe any progesterone if a woman had gone through a hysterectomy because they thought progesterone's only need was to protect the uterus from excess estrogen, increasing the lining of the uterus and causing kind of estrogen bleeding and things like that. But We now know progesterone has a huge impact on the body and the brain, and it's necessary way beyond the uterus. So I am of the mindset, you replace both, you take them to physiological dose, not just my hot flashes got better, but you want them to produce their physiological effect. So you get the bone protection, the brain protection, the heart protection, the mood protection, and all those other things. So I believe in doing both. And on the other side of that equation, I also believe women should be on testosterone therapy, even though the FDA has not approved testosterone therapy for women. So every woman listening, we make three to four times the amount of testosterone on any given day than the highest level of our estrogen at its absolute highest. It is an important hormone for women. It's just 
never been looked at because there was extraordinary male bias in the science and research community that drove everybody to sort of push that hormones were unsafe. And definitely they thought women didn't need testosterone. And what form should women take testosterone in? Same thing, really topically, topically or like a pellet, something where it's absorbing through the tissues instead of going through the liver. So you take topical estrogen, topical testosterone, and do you take topical progesterone or do you take it orally? Okay. And you said for progesterone, oral is better for sleep? Yes. Okay. Good to know. I didn't know that. So yeah. So does topical progesterone help at all if someone has sleep issues or not? Not really? It does. It doesn't seem to be as powerful. Right. And, you know, some of it, you know, like everybody always thinks of progesterone as something for the uterus, right? It's to protect the uterus from excess estrogen or it's to get the uterus ready for, you know, fertility. Right. But progesterone has these effects, like I said, you know, the holding of the receptor for GABA. So it has a calming effect. It also has a calming effect on levels of dopamine and the NMDA receptor in the brain. So it has a modulating mood effect on its own. And progesterone acts a little bit as an analgesic. So it has a pain killing side to it too, you know, so it has all these multifaceted pieces to it that we would benefit from. All right. And so if someone has a hysterectomy, it sounds like pretty much in just about all cases, if not all cases, you would recommend the three Mm -hmm. hormones then? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the thing is, is You could get things like a little bit of hair loss, right? You can get hair loss from too little testosterone and too much testosterone, and you can get hair loss from the loss of progesterone and estrogen, you know, so that's where testing like the Dutch test comes in, because even if you're on these hormones, you can see that that's going to happen and you can put things in to sort of stop it. Like I have a tendency for hair loss with testosterone therapy if I'm not protecting against that based on my genetics. So I can put things in like stinging nettle and saw palmetto that help sort of push away from the production of a hormone called dihydrotestosterone or DHT, which causes hair loss, right? So there's a lot that can be done to watch and also sort of modulate so we get the best effect of the hormones and reduce the side effects that may be from them. And then what, so what perimenopause, if someone is, let's say the beginning stages of perimenopause, I guess I'm trying to also figure out when it comes to the herbs too, do you use like something like chase tree or uh, maca that you mentioned, Don Kwai? Is it more in premenopause before they hit the perimenopause and postmenopause? Or is it when they're in perimenopause before they hit postmenopause? Or do you just like combine the two, the mm-hmm. bioidentical hormones along with the botanicals? Yeah, I definitely use the botanicals for sure in perimenopause, right? Especially somebody that's maybe early on and doesn't necessarily need hormones. And I use them with the hormones, you know, because those herbs also, because they shift those hormone pathways a little bit, they have some positive effect also on like how you detox your estrogens. And often you can put them together with some of the other nutritional compounds that make it easier for you to sort of get your estrogen down the cleaner pathways. So foods like the brassica family and, you know, broccoli and Brussels sprouts and kale your berries, even caffeine. Caffeine's been vindicated. It helps you make clean estrogen. Rosemary extract, thyroxine helps you get a cleaner pathway for estrogen detox. So adding nutrients like that can help also improve the estrogen detox. So indole-3-carbonyl or DIM, even citrus bioflavonoids and hops can help you make cleaner estrogen pathways. And often you can combine those with those herbs 
in particularly somebody that might be starting on hormone therapy to make that cleaning pathway really clean, right? You know, like everything's moving in the right direction. So I use them all the time and I use them all the way through menopause. All right. Very cool. Well, I want to spend a few minutes on postpartum thyroiditis, but before we talk about that, is there anything else, anything that I should have asked you about progesterone that I didn't ask you or anything that I'm sure there's a lot more that you could talk about, but anything like urgent that, oh, you know, you wanted me to ask you that I didn't ask you? No, I got to hit on the big ones. I think if every woman listening to this, you know, kind of walks away and says, huh, maybe I need to explore this because, you know, it might be a bigger deal. And especially if you are in the age range where it makes sense to look at it, then I've probably done my job. (laughs) All right. Very good. So let's just spend a few minutes on postpartum thyroiditis because I know you have a lot of experience with that. And so I definitely want you to focus on the management, but also I don't know if you want to talk about a little bit, I guess, what postpartum thyroiditis is and how frequently do you see it in your practice? Yes, yes. So, you know, I do see postpartum thyroiditis. And even though I don't necessarily always work with people on the fertility side. So postpartum thyroiditis is a pregnancy-induced Hashimoto's antithyroid peroxidase antibodies. What I have found, and you could probably speak to this as well, is that often this is a subclinical Hashimoto's, the antibodies that were already present before pregnancy, and it's the hormone changes that that radically shift, you know, what's happening in the pregnancy itself, and then that's what the ensuing sort of inflammatory response. And, you know, I like to think about it this way. When we're pregnant, one whole side of our immune system sort of takes a nap right? Because otherwise, if it was paying attention, it would kill the fetus because we have a foreign entity in our body. And so a lot of it is this inflammatory response of those hormones shifting, the reduction in progesterone and the increase in progesterone relative or estrogen relative to it, and then the turning back on of that immune system and also the increase in prolactin because prolactin is immune stimulating and prolactin is the hormone that brings in breast milk. I think all of those things are just ripe for an opportunity for thyroiditis postpartum. And so how do you manage it? Again, I know that's not your focus, Mm -hmm. but when you do see someone postpartum thyroiditis, what do you do to help manage the symptoms? So if we look kind of in the research, there's some pretty good research that nutritional selenium, right? So adequate levels of selenium and taking supplemental selenium, selenium, both even pre-pregnancy, like if somebody's like, hey, I know I have antibodies, but maybe I'm not fully Hashimoto's or maybe I'm Hashimoto's and I don't want to have a thyroid storm afterwards that we can use preventative selenium, right? And so obviously if somebody's experiencing that using appropriate selenium from that, you know, I also look at sort of the usual sort of anti-inflammatory things. So taking your inflammatory foods out, particularly gluten, even if you aren't celiac, even if you're not sure if you're gluten sensitive, like remove that immune stimulating food because it does poke holes in our intestinal walls and it you know can just increase this sort of immune response even if somebody's not you know celiac and then i also look at some of your other really inflammatory foods your sugar your dairy your processed foods and in some people we might even remove grains for a period of time because they tend to be a little more immune stimulating the other thing i often look at too is the amount of iodine right whether it's too much or too little, because on either side, if it's too much or too little, you can see an increase in thyroiditis. 
And I worry, and you may agree with me or disagree with me, you know, there's been this sort of prevailing story in functional medicine that was started by a particular physician, or I think he was a researcher, but everybody that had thyroid problems needed really super physiological doses of iodine, right? And I see just as many people that may have thyroiditis, you know, postpartum and or, you know, an uptick in Hashimoto's antibodies. And some of it is probably being driven by too much iodine, right? Yes, if we don't have enough and our soil is depleted, but, you know, chances are people are eating foods with iodine in it. And so the relative risk of somebody being severely iodine deficient is probably not what's being promoted out there. So I very much believe in doing sort of an iodine to creatinine ratio and really looking at that and adjusting the diet to either increase or decrease that iodine level. Yeah, I agree that you want to be cautious with iodine. And I was on the iodine bandwagon years ago, just as far as the higher dose iodine and just realize that that's not a good idea for a lot of people with not only Hashimoto's, but Graves disease as well. I mean, that being said, if someone is pregnant, they probably want to take a prenatal that has iodine, but it has just a smaller amount of iodine. So you don't want to go the other extreme where you're completely restricting iodine during pregnancy because iodine is important, of course, for the development of the feet, especially the brain. But as, but I agree as far as like taking separate iodine supplements during pregnancy, that could be a contributing factor. And yeah, that's a good advice with the selenium. And yeah, I mean, you're right. A lot of people don't know that they have Hashimoto's during pregnancy. And that's I mean, if someone does know they have it, then they could take the proper precautions. But I guess it's a good argument for really anyone to just try to eat a healthy anti-inflammatory diet, do things to manage stress. And also, sounds like you agree. It's like some people will talk about birth as being a trigger, but it's not really. I mean, it's almost like the straw that broke the camel's back because the person had the antibodies prior. It's not like the birth actually caused Hashimoto's. As you know, it takes years for that process to develop and all that. It's just, but yeah, anything else that you wanted to talk about when it comes to postpartum thyroiditis? I know there's probably not a whole lot to talk about, but I wanted you to just give an overview and you did a good job of just talking about some of the ways to manage it. You know, I would like to say, so I think we should be testing for these things before we think it's a problem, right? Because again, you're going to develop Hashimoto's over time. It's not something new. And I think the other thing people need to realize is when we look at lab reference ranges, and some of them may vary by lab, but when you look at those lab reference ranges, they didn't go out and get a thousand of the healthiest people on the planet and go, what's the perfect range? They picked like a thousand random, probably medical students that were sleep deprived, sick and tired and did theirs. And so, you know, a lot of times people, let's say maybe they got lucky and someone looked for antibodies and let's say they're just slightly below diagnostic criteria. And, you know, I always look at those things and they're like, oh, you're fine. I'm like, you shouldn't be creating antibodies to your own body parts. And especially if you're skirting the high side of normal, something's brewing, right? Something's brewing. So if I know that I can take proactive steps. So just because somebody's in the reference range doesn't necessarily mean that that won't progress to something later on. It may not, but it may. It's important to sort of look at it as the N of one, that person, and what's that likelihood for that to increase? Yeah, I definitely agree. You want to look at the optimal ranges. And the problem is that most of the time, they're just going to do a thyroid panel and many times just a TSH. And then if the TSH is on a higher side, but within the range, 
they won't look any further, but yeah, they should be doing like predictive antibody testing where they look at the thyroid antibodies, especially the thyroid peroxidase and antithyroglobulin antibodies, even if the TSH is within range, because again, it takes time for that process to develop where the TSH becomes out of range. So yeah, that's a good point where you know, all pregnant women, the argument for them to have the thyroid panel as well as the antibodies. Uh, don't think it'll happen anytime soon in the in conventional medicine world. But again, in the functional medicine world, probably a good idea. And yeah, so thank you for sharing that, for talking about postpartum thyroiditis. And where can people find out more about you, Betty? Sure, sure. So obviously you could listen to Menopause Mastery Podcast. And even, you know, I have some men that follow me. And even if you're not in menopause, we're talking about this sort of trajectory time period as these hormones change and then onward. And so you can obviously follow me there. You can find me at bettymurray.com and that's B-E-T-T-Y-M-U-R-R-A-Y.com. And even on that website, you can get to a what's your hormone type quiz. You can find that there. And what it is, is a questionnaire. It takes about two, three minutes, and it's going to help walk through a bunch of symptoms and help you figure out what hormone imbalance you may have. So you can figure out, hey, are my adrenals fried? Are my sex hormones causing a problem? Or is it thyroid? Or is it my metabolic hormones? It helps sort of distinguish that. And it has its own personalized report that comes from your questions. Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely check out Betty's podcast as well as her quiz. And thank you so much for chatting about hormones, especially progesterone, even though you also spoke a good amount about estrogen and a little bit about testosterone, again, postpartum thyroiditis. Again, you shared a wealth of information and it was a pleasure having this conversation, Betty. Thank you, Dr. Eric. It was really fun being on. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And to get your free thyroid and immune health restoration action points checklist, visit SaveMyThyroidChecklist.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was a wonderful conversation I had with Betty. So I learned a few things about progesterone. One thing I did not know is that Oral progesterone, when taken in bioidentical form, is better than bioidentical progesterone in topical form. So that's interesting. So if you're looking to take progesterone for sleep, oral is better, even though topical might still work, but just according to our experience, oral is a better option. Now, one thing, it seems like, I don't know if she said this, but it's suggested that everyone in postmenopause should take progesterone. And there are others I interviewed. I believe Dr. Deb Matthew recommends for bioidentical hormones for everyone in postmenopause and men as they get older to take testosterone. Again, I'm not 100% sure. I don't want to put words in her mouth and say 100%. I think in most cases, a woman in postmenopause, Deb Matthew, and again, it sounded like Betty would recommend that as well. So that's where I disagree. I think it could benefit a good number of women. So again, I'm not opposed to it. And in the past, admittedly, I don't want to say I was resistant, but trying to do everything naturally. But there's a time and place for bioidentical progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, just like there's a time and place for thyroid hormone replacement. So if someone has optimized their adrenals, which I'm going to talk about shortly, and if they're still experiencing certain symptoms, then maybe taking bioidentical 
progesterone is a good option. So I'll get to the adrenals in a minute, but just wanted to bring up chase tree and maca root. So it's good that she does use some herbal remedies as well. And I've liked both chase tree and maca root. Again, I can't say I recommend them to most people, to most women, but at times I will probably more chase tree, which is also known as Vitex. She also mentioned Don Kwai as well, but all these herbs are really beneficial or can be really beneficial. Everybody's different. So some people, they'll take, let's say, maca root and it won't agree with them, but that could happen with any herb, which is why you want to listen to your body. But you know, something like, for example, chase tree helps to support the body's own progesterone production. So now if someone has exhausted adrenals or if someone has, I shouldn't use exhausted adrenals because again, the controversy of adrenal fatigue, which I've discussed in different episodes. So if they have dysregulation of the HPA axis, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal dysregulation, then chase tree might not be the best option. You would, in this case, want to support the adrenals. Maca root, I think she mentioned progesterone also, which I guess makes sense since this is a conversation mostly on progesterone. She brought up maca root, but from what I understand, it also could help with estrogen too. Anyway, so just good that Betty also uses herbs and not just the bioidentical hormones. Now, getting back to adrenals, so I've said, I don't know how many times I've said on this podcast, but for years I've said in other areas, whether it's my website, my blog post, or when I do live events, commonly say you need healthy adrenals to have healthy sex hormones. And again, that doesn't come from me. That's what I've learned through my training. And it makes sense. If you don't have healthy adrenals, you're not going to have healthy thyroid. You're not going to have healthy progesterone. You're not going to have healthy estrogen. So it's not just sex hormones. I mentioned thyroid too. Even though most cases of thyroid conditions are autoimmune in nature, you still need optimal adrenals. So if someone is in postmenopause and they're having issues sleeping and other symptoms, let's say hot flashes, night sweats, which of course that could be related to like low estrogen. Again, I'm not saying there's not a time and place and maybe many of those women do need to take biotentical hormones, but you want to optimize the adrenals first because maybe some of those women, arguably in my experience, a lot of those women would not need to take biotentical hormones if they optimize their adrenals. But even if they need to take bioidentical hormones, maybe they won't need as high of a dose if you optimize the adrenals. So I definitely would recommend to optimize the adrenals before taking progesterone or really any type of bioidentical hormone. So, I mean, for any men listening to this, I don't know if any men will get this far just because it's a topic on progesterone. But I mean, again, women or men, testosterone, like again, if someone has a lower libido then there's a time and place for taking testosterone, but same concept. You want to optimize adrenals first. So that's all I'll say with that about that. And then caffeine. So she mentioned that caffeine can play a role with estrogen metabolism. And so there is some research where caffeine can help with that. But still, I can't say, I mean, everything's risk versus benefits. And I'm not saying there's absolutely no benefits to caffeine, but there's also some risks as well. It depends. Some people are fast metabolizers of caffeine, which actually is me. I had some genetic testing years ago that showed that. Again, I don't consume a lot of caffeine, but if I wanted to, I would metabolize it quicker than those who are slow metabolizers. So if someone's a slow metabolizer, and some people will know they'll get wired if they, let's say, drink caffeinated coffee. And so they can't have it in the afternoon. They have to have it early in the morning or else they'll be up all night. So again, if that's you, 
you probably want to avoid caffeine. If you're a fast metabolizer, while someone's restoring their health, I don't recommend to avoid caffeine. I mean, there are other ways to help support estrogen metabolism that I prefer, such as eating cruciferous vegetables, for example, and uh, supporting gut health as well. But just wanted to bring that up. And that was it. We chatted a little bit about postpartum thyroiditis, which some of you might have realized was also an earlier Q&A episode. I took the clip just to have a separate episode on postpartum thyroiditis. So I spent a, a few minutes on that. So hope you found that interesting. And again, hope you found this entire conversation on progesterone to be super helpful. And thanks for listening. And as usual, I look forward to catching you in the next episode. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash liver support.